Hello and welcome to episode 58 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray in the driver's seat as we prepare to take our regular tour into golf's less explored zones. As regular listeners know, one of my favourite podcast activities is to have guests join us in the studio. And I'm pleased to say that's our good fortune today when an out of quarantine yet still buzzing from the Masters experience, Lucas Michelle takes up a seat at the good, good table. Lucas with us in just a moment. But first, as always, a big hello to my regular co-host, Adrian Logue, who'll have the pleasure of watching Lucas up close a little, to, little later today when they hit the course together. Adrian, welcome. Uh, thanks, Rod. Yeah, Lucas had the misfortune of having to do his quarantine in Sydney, but it means we've got the good fortune of having him in the studio this morning. And, right, and, uh, and he has the misfortune again of having to play golf. It's like that, um, what's that, what, what was that children's story where something falls out of the plane? It's a good luck, bad luck thing as it just rolls on? That's what Lucas is having with you. I don't know. Is it something to do with the Thunderbirds? Or? No, it wasn't Thunderbirds. <laughs> okay. something to do with uh, something falls out of a plane. Anyway, uh, I'll address the elephant in the room before I bring Lucas in. Uh, some of you may have noticed there was no show last week. That's my fault. I got completely snowed under here doing some non-golf-related stuff. Happy to say the bulk of those instructions have now been dealt with. We should be back to regular programming from now on. In fact, we've got too many guests coming up and not enough weeks to do them, which we'll talk about uh, when we finish. Enough about all that time to say hello to our special in-studio guest, Lucas Michelle. For those who may not know, Lucas is the 2019 US Mid-Amateur Champion, and as a result of that victory, earned a place in the field for both the US Open and Masters this year. He's just got out of quarantine here in Sydney, having returned from Augusta, and is enjoying a bit of Harbour City Golf before heading back to Melbourne. Lucas, welcome. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's good to be in the studio finally. It is. Get a bit closer to that mic yeah. for me yep. so that we can all hear you because I was just about to tell you, you could practically host this yourself, couldn't you? How many podcasts have you been on in the last, let's say, six weeks? I think closer I... Closer still. Yeah. Come maybe, on. I Get, did... Bring the arm to you. That's the whole point. I hey. did... I think I did four during quarantine, maybe five. Um, and the big ones, we're not talking yeah, podcasts, we so, no laying up. Yeah, no egg. laying up, Eric Anders Lang, Fried Egg, um, and then a couple smaller ones, um, obviously did the State of the Game State as the well. Game. Um, so yeah, I've, I've done a good number of them, I uh, feel like I'm bits. maybe getting a little bit more comfortable doing them, but um, <laughs> I mean, this is my first one in a studio, I think, I, I did um, the Golf Australia one in the studio, but... Um, well, they, do, a, they use the SEN. They, they do, they yeah, do. so this is the first one... In the uh, yeah. Talking Golf production studio. What is it about studio. podcasts? What you're is it about? You're a young person. What is it about podcasts? Why um, are they? I'm an avid podcast listener. Just golf or other stuff as well? Uh, no, other stuff. Lots of other stuff. Like, a few, I, I like the Freakonomics podcasts. Uh-huh. I don't know if you've listened to those I've ones. They're it. good. BBC ones, BBC World Service kind of ones. And I listen to a lot of different podcasts. Um, golf instruction ones, um, which I'm obviously interested in for my own, my own good, but... Um, yeah, I listen to all the golf architecture ones as well, a little bit of the golf history ones. So, yeah, it's a good – I find it good to just fill in time. You know, I, I work at a driving range back in Melbourne. Um, that's sort of what I did through university. And you spend two hours picking up balls at night and, um, you know, you're just literally driving a cart around picking up balls. It's very therapeutic. You're not really doing anything. Your mind kind of wanders. It's a really good time to just, like, think yeah. – but um, I'll often pop a podcast on, and um, or three or four, you know, depending on how long they are, and I can get through a bunch of podcasts in a couple of hours, which 
you know, put them on maybe one and a half times speed if you really want to get through them. Oh, but you're in the you logue school. Oh, you yeah, train, yeah you got to train the ears. Yeah, well, something wrong with you. University was good for that because I used to listen to lectures at two times speed. Yeah, which was, you know, especially <laughs> Why you didn't learn anything. Yeah, well, coming into the exam period, it was just necessary because yeah. I would always run out of time. But um, yeah, I certainly trained my mind to, to pick up the information a bit faster. Yeah. So, and then everyone sounds drunk when you hear yeah, them in real time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, once as soon as you convert it from two and a half or sorry one and a half to normal everyone just sounds really drunk and mm. <laughs> the worst thing is being trapped in a car with somebody and they say oh, i'll put on a podcast and it's something you're familiar with and they put it on at one one yeah. speed and it's what's going yeah. on you blokes are going to have a ball driving to newcastle today you can put on all your favorite podcasts at two times speed and just That's revel good, in each yeah. other's joy at uh, at listening to it i can't do it it's ridiculous people sound like uh chipmunks it's kind of replaced long form writing don't you think yeah i'd say so yeah i, I don't think there's not replaced, but it's a... Yeah, there's less a, need for it, probably. I mean, I mean, there's so many good podcasts, so many good guests. And, like, it's funny now. Like, when I meet someone that I want to know stuff from, I always I always feel like I already know them if I've listened to a podcast yeah. with them. Like, and now people are asking me, like, oh, how was your experience? How have you enjoyed it? And I've already done five podcasts. I'm almost like, yeah, listen to these. <laughs> yeah. these. These will tell <laughs> so you. In, they need to meet me. Yeah. Here's yeah. these five links. That's yeah. everything you need to know about. Exactly. So... Um, they're good in that way, I think. Yeah, interesting. It's an interesting uh, interesting corner of the world, isn't it? Let's talk about some golf, obviously. You're mm-hmm. here playing a bit of golf in Sydney. As people will know, many people many people will have heard you on all of those podcasts in the last month or two, including Adrian. I haven't had a chance to listen to all of those, so I've missed out a bunch of stuff. But you're here in Sydney. You're from Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Most will tell you that of those two cities, Melbourne's the one you want to go to to play mm-hmm. golf. You're wandering around, play. You've put a play golf up here plenty over the yeah. over the years. What's uh, what's your take on Sydney golf? Yeah, so obviously when I came into quarantine, I figured that I would spend a few extra days in Sydney, given that I flew in. Um, I've got some family up here that I can stay with, which is nice. Um, Sydney golf's a funny one. Like, obviously, you know, it's probably got as good a land as Melbourne, if not better. Um, but definitely didn't have as much influence from Alice McKenzie and we were talking about it before that we recorded, but didn't have the influence of someone like uh, Mick Morecambe and Alex Russell as well. So um, it kind of kind of missed out a little bit on the finesse of um, Melbourne golf course architecture. And, um, yeah, it's, it's not quite to the standard that Melbourne is, unfortunately, when probably had all of the same opportunities to be great. You've got a theory, Logue. I love your theories because you always work on them for a couple of weeks before you reveal them. What's your theory about Sydney golf? Uh, it's more of a like a, a thesis. Thesis, right. Yeah. Okay, you've really gone the whole hoggy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, nice. <laughs> um, well, I, I, a lot of this folks. sort of came together for me listening to the Golfing Greenkeepers podcast the other day, which is uh, one I'll send you a link for the show notes, Rod. Um, uh, but people, I recommend people should uh, listen to the Golfing Greenkeeper podcast. It's very good. It, it, a huge amount of, of information about construction and courseworks that are going on around Australia. And he did a special on uh, Dan Souter. And it really got me thinking, like, you know, Dan Souter uh, was a, a pro from – or it wasn't pro, actually. It was an amateur from Carnoustie, uh, came out and – uh, actually turned pro in Australia but um, won a lot of tournaments here but got into golf course architecture and built a lot of courses. There's almost every course in of note in New South Wales he's 
had some hand in it. Yeah, even if you've never, if you know nothing about him, if you've played golf in Sydney, you'll have heard the name Dan Souter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no question. And he and Carnegie Clark did a lot of work together as well. Um, and uh, they they actually grew up together. They knew each other back in Scotland. Um, and later in later times, Sydney had Eric Appley did a lot of work around the golf courses here and where Lucas and I are going to play later on today up at Newcastle is probably Eric Appley's finest work, uh, at least some of the holes there. And uh, the the thing I'm thinking about with those guys is they all had uh, good golf IQ. Like they, mm. these were these were they knew golf. They these, these guys knew golf. New golf. And they were laying out courses which had good bones, and there was good strategy there, and the routing and everything that they put down. Was, was all high-quality stuff and uh, arguably as good as what was happening in the golf community in other areas of Australia. And in fact, Dan Suter and Carnegie Clark did work in other areas of Australia as well. Um, uh, notably, Dan Suter you know, did the first layout for Kingston Heath and Royal Adelaide, I think. Um, par 80 when it was first done, Kingston Heath, is that right? Well, par bogey was it bogey eighty or something? Back, yeah, but, yeah, but it was it was it was outrageously long mm. when it was. Built. It was really it was, it was one of the longest courses in Australia or in the world. Um, but uh, yeah, so like they knew what they going what they were doing there, and it's just a it's just I think they didn't know how to build courses on clay. So you think the construction more the issue? I think, and I don't know if those guys were necessarily hanging around to do the construction at every site where they where they put courses down, but. Uh, the, it's just such a difference between the courses in Melbourne, which were constructed on sand, where there's obviously a lot more flexibility, and the courses in Sydney, which were constructed on sand as well. The early layout of the Australian um, and Royal Sydney um, were magnificent. Um, you see the Carnegie Clark layout of the Australian from the 1940s and 50s was was just a magnificent layout. and uh, But then the parkland courses in Sydney all have these daggy push-up greens and and weird mounds for tees and you just tell i think we just didn't know how to build courses on clay and uh when you compare that to the clay courses in like a philadelphia or somewhere where uh i think they they're a bit more practiced at that and they had more more people giving inputs to the process and and what to do with the water and and how to how to build what go what went under the ground uh the results are a lot better um so uh, I don't know. I think that's where we sort of lost our way. And as Lucas was saying, there's no, there was no Mick Morecambe to mm. like the clay version of Mick Morecambe <laughs> to to work out how to build these courses. But if there was, Sydney could have had the most amazing, diverse range of courses of anywhere in the world. Really, we've got these. We've got some of the best cliff top golf in the world with New South Wales. We've got beach side courses with this sort of weird swampy sort of New South Wales coastline mm-hmm. uh, courses, you know, like a uh, Monavale or, or Wollongong oh, or yeah. Belmont, um, which, uh, which are all quite good, but not world-class necessarily. They all feel like they're not quite what they could be. That's right. They're good, but they feel like they could be better. Yeah. And then we've got some of the best sand belt uh, or some of the best sand uh, and landscape on sand of any capital city in the world. Um, and then, uh, you know, and then we've got parkland courses and 
hinterland courses and mountain courses as well, like it, all within an hour's drive of metropolitan Sydney. You really have been chewing on this, haven't you? I, yeah. I like all that. It's so, all interesting. Anyway, Lucas, but, you're in the architecture game now. You sort yeah. of partnered up with Mike Clayton. You've got an interest in that aspect of it. The tradition, I suppose, what Adrian's suggesting there is right. It tells us that the unsung heroes of golf course architecture historically have been the construction people, the shapers and those sorts of things. Mm. That's changing, don't you think? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think, I do think those people are probably getting a little bit more credit. Like, I mean, it feels like even now Mick Morecambe's getting a bit more acknowledgement than he ever has. Um, you know, Alex Russell as well. And, but yeah, globally, it seems like shapers um, around the world, a lot of architects now started out as shapers. And yeah, I think, I think that's, that's definitely, become more popular i mean it's not glamorous i don't think no it's lots of times in excavators and bobcats <coughs> listening to podcasts or, yeah, mu- exactly. or music exactly like i saw it firsthand with mike devries I, I spent six or seven weeks with him and really mike devries is a shaper like he's, he's a golf course architect but the where he kind of makes his difference is in a bulldozer shaping shelling out bunkers and really putting his ideas on the ground or into the ground like um, yeah, I, I mean, he was on site when I spent time with him. Um, you know, sunrise if it was six fifteen, and sunset if it was seven pm. Like he was there the whole time. Mm. Any any every waking hour, he was on site shaping stuff. So he's probably yeah, he's probably a big unsung kind of um, hero of golf course architecture. Like he's a guy that hasn't uh, hasn't got a lot of attention, but I think he's as good as anyone in the business um yeah so you know that he's sort of like you said sort of not really appreciated for what he does i think um yeah he's as good as they get i don't think too many people have more hours in a bulldozer than mike DeVries. so yeah there's definitely there's definitely some some people in golf course architecture that haven't got the credit that they deserve just because they haven't been the big name that's routed and yeah. done all the rest. It's always been part of commercially. You need to mention yeah. that he's one third of Clayton DeVries and Pont. That Lucas. Is that's true. an opportunity yeah. that you must jump on. <laughs> yeah, Edward Cartwright. Whenever it presents itself, Clayton DeVries and Pont. He's an interesting one, Mike, isn't he? As you say, he sort of he came to the fore. I think probably somewhat here in Australia internationally. Mm. He was well known in America, but the yeah. the course he did on King Island. Uh, yeah, is it King Island? King Island, yeah, King yeah. Island, yeah. yeah he gone, gone blank. I, I mean, it was. I remember him telling me the story about how he got that job, and it was. I think it was the owner that had the site wanted someone, and you know he got given all the names, and it was Tom Doak and Bill Core, and you know, and all those names. And you know, I think obviously those guys would have taken up the opportunity, but the owner didn't want one of those names. He kind of wanted to take a shot with someone else, um, and. And it was Mike DeVries, and Mike, I'm sure, was very appreciative of that. I mean, it was such a great opportunity. I unfortunately haven't been to King Island play the golf course yet, and I really want to, but um, from all accounts, it's incredible. And he, he actually talks about that site being probably, in a way, the most diverse site he's ever seen, like kind of what you were speaking about, Sydney golf. It's kind of got all, of all the aspects site, of yeah. Sydney golf in one site maybe except for like Parkland but you know <laughs> it's got cliff top it's got holes right on the water it's got sand dunes it's got kind of everything and he, he thinks it's probably 
the most diverse site that he's ever seen and he's obviously it was an incredible opportunity for him to work on and his son fell in love with afl while they were there too so yeah, yeah it was a winner all around i think he played for the local team he said he loved he was about 15 when they were yeah. there for about a year yeah. it was uh, it was terrific did you get a chance to jump on the the big dozer with mike at all and are you, are you inclined that way i briefly did i got to play around on it he um there was two dozers on site so there was always a shaper on site other than mike um but occasionally there would be the opportunity to to jump in and learn the controls and um oh, is it terrifying no it's honestly <laughs> like pretty it's very easy to operate from a basic sense but it'd be very easy to knock a building down with by mistake well, as well yeah. if you don't know what you're doing so i think there is a terrifying aspect to it <laughs> yeah no it's it's a very heavy piece of yeah. machinery um very easy to operate though simply like it's almost like like a video game in a way like there's a joystick and you kind of just there's a couple joysticks actually but basically you just kind of got to be pretty dexterous with joysticks um it's easy to operate like simply to drive it around Mm -hmm. it's more difficult to be much more precise with something that big um using the blade properly to do what you want to do that takes a lot of time to to really get good at um so obviously mike's very good at that and i was not really i wasn't really using the blade much i was kind of just he said just track in this area it's a bit heavy so i'd basically just drive on top of it like 500 times to like just pack it down and make sure it doesn't the, settle the too intern's much. job i'm trying to imagine <laughs> um, mike clayton on a oh goodness <laughs> <laughs> enough with a pen don't give him the I've, I've been driven in, with him i was so. gonna say have you been yeah. in a car yeah. i haven't but i've heard others the time as well. yeah yeah i haven't been in the car with him i'm not sure that i uh, that i actually want to essentially what it is is like a giant paint the equivalent of a giant paintbrush for an artist isn't it mm. and it's an extraordinary thing to consider mm-hmm. how precise those guys are mm-hmm. uh, i know derek talks about this a lot on feed the ball about the advances in technology in earth-moving equipment and those sorts of things had probably a bigger impact on golf than perhaps anything else technologically in time. What you can do with the machinery, it's amazing to watch those guys, isn't it? It really is a skill. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but I, I find it just terrifying to think that you're putting these permanent marks on the earth. You can see them from a plane. <laughs> if you <laughs> make right. a mess of it, an awful lot of people – well. A lot of people COVID, have got a, a hit a chip it. shot from that little hole that you've just put in the ground, yeah. you know, like that's or that little depression or something like that. And people are going to look at it for years. Like mm. it's it's a, a huge responsibility, I think. I was yeah. going to say not to terrify you, Lucas, but it is a responsibility, is it, to yeah. be a golf course architect, more so than any other kind yeah. of architect, I suspect. Yeah, I mean, it's you, Mother Nature, you're undoing <laughs> thousands of years of kind of work to get it to be an optimal piece of ground that functions properly. So... Um, yeah, you've you've got to be really careful with what you do. And Mike talked about that. Like, whenever you move dirt, you're changing how the ground functions. And so you've got to understand how the water flows, that you're not going to cause negative aspects external to the site. Um, yeah, so a big part of the work at Bloomfield Hills, where I was um, sort of doing an internship or whatever you want to call it, was sort of understanding how water exits the site, how it doesn't impact on the external environment. Um, so they filtered a lot of the water. They'd, they'd create these little filter mechanisms where, you know, the, the water would go into a catchment basin and then it would filter through so that the water exiting was clean and mm-hmm. exiting at the same rate that it always has, not anymore. There was a lot of different little 
things and nuanced little bits to, to understand. None of which has got anything to do with what a redeeming par three Yeah, where you put bunkers. <laughs> That's and right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, there's so much more to golf course architecture. I mean, that was really civil engineering more than yeah, it was right. golf course architecture, which obviously, I mean, I didn't study civil engineering. I studied mechanical engineering, but um, certainly I found that aspect just as interesting as, as yeah, trying to build a redan par three green or something like that. I thought it was fascinating. You're kind of a rare breed in that way, Lucas. You're, mm. you're an extraordinarily good player. You don't get to the Masters if you can't play the game at a certain level. But you are also devotedly interested mm. in architecture, not mm-hmm. just how it affects this shot and then your next shot. You know, you're not a look-downer. Mm. How did that happen? Because mm. it, it's not necessarily great for the playing of good golf mm. to be constantly distracted by the grounds that you're playing on. Yeah. I spoke, I've spoken about it a little bit. I think the... The point where I became interested in golf course architecture was when Mike Clayton was redesigning Lake Karen Up Country Club where as a 12, 13-year-old kid, I just joined as a junior member. Um, they had a great short course and junior program that I was part of. And then, yeah, in 20, it was 2007, 2006, 2007, I was yeah, 12 or 13. Uh, Clates went in there and, and did a major redesign of the golf course and I remember... I never saw it before, but what yeah, golf course it is I now. Mean, yeah. Before it was fine. It was a nice golf course, but what's there now is much, much better. And I, I watched it all transform in front of my eyes, and that was pretty formative for like me as a 12-, 13-year-old just watching the golf course you'd love to kind of be stripped and like re- completely reconfigured. Um, but it really interested me. I remember watching the... They put out a... At the time, it was like a little DVD of the proposed changes and, you know, all the like little um, renderings they did of like what the course was and what it would look like. And I remember just watching that DVD like 20 times, you know, it was just like maybe a 20-minute video and Clates was talking through everything and I just became fascinated with that. And then to watch, you know, what they'd proposed then turn into reality was, I found it really, really interesting. Um, and then so from there, I... I kept interested with it i mean i probably from then on was like kind of browsing like golf club atlas and those sort of places you were infected yeah like a 14 year old (laughs) yeah probably one of the youngest person people on there so um but yeah kind of became interested and started reading about it but it wasn't really till i got moved to melbourne um in 2011 2012 met mike clayton obviously joined metro where mike's a member that was when I started actually learning more. Speaking to Mike for four hours on a golf course, you learn a bit more about that um, that business, that industry, that kind of... And a few new words. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that you might so, not have encountered before. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, at that point I started, it was kind of like an accelerated learning curve, of just spending time with Mike and learning much, much more about how he sees things. And, and then, yeah, I obviously owned a lot of... Bought a lot of golf course architecture books at that point and, yeah, started learning a yeah. lot, lot more. And, um, a familiar yeah. journey for a lot that are listening to this podcast, except for the bit where you can play at the highest level. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. It's somewhat unusual. It's not yeah. unheard of. You know, Ben yeah. Crenshaw is obviously an architect. Clayton himself, Jeff Ogle, we know, a US Open winner. And yeah. All of that sort of stuff. But it's pretty rare, isn't it? I mean, yeah. when you – at the Masters, for example, I can't imagine there was a lot of golf course architecture talk during the practice rounds or the tournament itself with your no. peers. Yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think I'm not necessarily. Yeah, I'm not sure it it helps your golf. I mean, it certainly makes you more interested in golf courses. So you might be a little bit more 
uh, engaged maybe if you're playing a great golf course like Augusta National. Or, what if you're playing a dud? Lucas? Yeah, if you're playing a dud course, <laughs> you turn your blinkers on and you try to just focus on what you're trying to do. But, yeah, I think, like, for instance, when I was trying to learn Augusta National in the lead-up, I had a much – I would – guess I had a much stronger picture in my mind of what all the greens look like than a guy that wasn't interested in golf course architecture so approaching those greens chipping around them I probably had a better understanding of where how golf shots are going to react um, how they're going to feed around how they're going to play or coming into the green um, where I should miss and, and that sort of thing which is valuable so yeah I think there's times when um, it helps but yeah other times when it probably hurts a little bit yeah what was the Augusta experience like for a golf course architecture nut and was, also for a player. Yeah, it was good. I mean, Augusta, the more I play it, the less kind of it sort of – it never. It doesn't feel as amazing as the first time I played it. The first time you play Augusta National, the first time you go there, it's like overwhelming because it's that course of your childhood. Like yeah. it like defined my childhood in golf, like waking up at, you know, 8 a.m. on a – Monday morning in April and watching the final round and knowing every hole and every slope and like to go there in person and see it was like overwhelming but the more I played it the more I kind of appreciated it as a golf course just another golf course and I mean it's a great golf course um, but it's not maybe as it shouldn't shouldn't be as revered as it is as a golf course I think it's a very good golf course great golf course but it's not like one of the top handful of golf courses in the world what does Clay say Royal Melbourne's the golf course Augusta wishes it could have been yeah that's pretty accurate I think like there's a lot of stuff that gets done for the tournament that isn't necessarily great golf course architecture so they've you know if you if it was if it didn't have a golf tournament the biggest and most important golf tournament or one of the most important golf tournaments in the world played there every year it'd probably be a better golf course you'd think but yeah you can't help but wonder what mm. you might think of the 1930s and 40s augusta mm. if we had the chance to go back and yeah. see it and play it yeah it there's been some blandness introduced to yeah. it. seventh hole is a I mean, it's really got golf fairly ball. shapeless bunkers as well yeah. and very much so um, which is not how it started well the more i think about it, the least the less i'm sore about the fact i'll probably never play it like I, I just like I don't, I don't care. I'm good, you know. I've I've been there and had the pimento mm. cheese sandwich now. So you, you sound like somebody was, who's been hurt and is now not pretending no, actually, like it doesn't matter. I didn't mean it to sound like that. I, I <laughs> now think like I, I just have no desire to play it. Like it's it, it it's just, one of the games. Partly no, because it's such a like partly because of the agronomy. Woke Kenzie's going to go nuts about this because it's the it's the woke take of the day, isn't it? But it's. Augusta National is one of the great marketing companies in the world, are they not? They're up there with Nike. Now, we know mm-hmm. that Peter Thompson called it the greatest con in sport, and people take issue with that, but the point he was making is absolutely right. It has The Masters has no basis to be a major. In fact, it's an invitational tournament for a small field, the smallest of the four major fields. It's, its importance is only the value that the golfing public has placed on it, and that was very, it's been very carefully manipulated over the years, and they continue to do that. And I don't mean that as a criticism. Mm. Well, you're not going to play there now. I never was. <laughs> you know, but but you know, the, the Latin American amateur, the Asia-Pacific amateur, they've set themselves up in 20 years' time, players of your calibre in this part of the – we talked about this on mm. State of the Game. For them, the most important tournament in the world will be the Masters. That's already started. There's mm. already a, a, a significant percentage of people who think the Masters is more important than the two Opens. Yeah. 
there's a lot of things going its way to like set that up as well. Mm-hmm. Like the, everything they do, I mean, they run a perfect golf. Oh, they said, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they they're geniuses. Run it so well, yep. the fact that it's played on the same course every year Absolutely. has a is a big aspect of people's familiarity with it, and when they, it's the point of difference that the PGA lacks. For yeah, the it's got a point of difference. The Masters because it's at Augusta National. The yeah. PGA kind of the two opens are open. Mm-hmm. And the PGA lacks that point mm-hmm. of difference since it stopped being match. Mm. It works in two ways as well because if a hole or some aspect of a green or something hasn't changed, then the familiarity works in their favour mm-hmm. because. You know, you saw Norman hit this putt on 13 from, you know, 1987, which broke left to right away from the creek. And you think, oh, wow, I know that putt. And, like, you can see that same putt 20 years later. and, and mm-hmm. so, so the familiarity works in your favour. But similarly, if they make a change, that's fascinating mm-hmm. too. <laughs> like, yeah. the, going back to the same venue year after year has, has mm-hmm. both of those benefits because you can yeah, – the, the changes are just as fascinating as the familiarity. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Is it almost – Foe, not fake foe. When you go there, is there almost a sense that it's almost not real? I mean, what Lee Westwood described it as Disneyland for grown-ups. Mm. If you're into golf, is there almost a sense that it's not? Everything might not be quite yeah. as it seems. I think so, a little bit. I mean, not to get you in trouble. I'm no, not, I'm sure you want to go the, back at some point. The hum of the um, the sub air systems and like, there's a lot going on around that place that you don't see but you can tell you can kind of just subtly tell mm. there's other stuff um you know the tunnel that goes from the driving range under to like the locker rooms is like the like i, can't, I don't know how much money they spent on that but it's like it's like a serious tunnel it feels like you're driving through like in melbourne through like <laughs> the burnley tunnel yeah that's right um so there's like all these like you get these like little hints that yeah. like this place is like completely you know, it's a bit of a Stepford Wives type of yeah, feel about it. <laughs> it, it it's definitely <laughs> bizarre, and it's super impressive. Um, but yeah, it doesn't feel like a natural kind of experience walking through a natural piece of property like you know Bannon Dunes or somewhere there's, else. There's nothing natural about yeah. it at all, actually. Like mm-hmm. even like a, as a spectator, you you go around and you see that every single inch of the property is landscaped. Mm-hmm. There's no wild bush yeah. anywhere. Like yeah. you just you go right offline. Actually, you went right offline. Yeah, times. I did that a few times. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> and it goes out to pine straw, and mm-hmm. but it's just manicured turf right to the edge of any little mini forest that mm-hmm. they've got, and then the forest floor is all pristine. It's like it, it's, and that's not just the stuff you see. Just off the fairway, it, it that goes for everything like deep into the property. Well, you seem to find all those balls left of 13. You see two or three every yeah. year. Yeah. How do they, f- they you look do. at that and go, Well, you can't find a golf ball? Mm. So, um, invariably, they go in and chip it out. Yeah, just, just nothing <laughs> wild about that bush in there. I don't think, <laughs> yeah, it's just, uh, indeed. Is it good or good for the game? Like, uh, I don't know. I don't see. I'm oh, it's a great entertainment, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a great product for professional golf, a great showcase for professional golf, but. Uh, like we talked about with our Matthew Wharton podcast, I think it's um, uh, t- it sets a terrible example. Uh, these days it does. I think with the rough this year looked terrible on, on TV. I know you know the, is that just because we're not used the to playing it? characteristics of it were mm. you know okay or in comparison to probably what you played at Wingfoot. Um, but I, I just think again, just seeing this hyper green monoculture on TV is damaging golf. Um, and again, I'd, I'd probably point at 
uh, Garrett Morrison's podcast on why why we're obsessed with green. Obsessed with green. I, I just I really feel cyclical? like golf has got to move away from that. It, it hopefully cyclical? it, it will we, will probably is cyclical, that? but yeah. I, it's been we're a good fifty years into this mm. part of the cycle. Um, so uh, hopefully it'll swing away because water's the biggest problem facing hmm. golf in the next fifty years. So. Uh, what a peek into the world of money can't buy experiences we're getting from Lucas Michelle here. This is fantastic stuff, and there's plenty more to come after this short break. Yes, you knew it was coming. Time to make mention of our sponsor here at the Talk and Golf Network, thegolfsociety.com.au online apparel concept store. Now, a lot of you listen each week, and you hear me mention thegolfsociety.com.au. But I wonder if you've taken the time to go and have a look. There really is some terrific value stuff. There's always specials to be had. The brand names alone guarantee you're getting the very best quality. And you know that it's at the best prices. So whether it's shoes, shirts, shorts, men's, women's or accessories, do yourself a favour and log on to thegolfsociety.com.au and check out the range today. You can even do it while you're listening to the rest of this chat with Lucas Michelle. As long as you're not driving, of course. Maybe ask you about Wingfoot, Lucas, including mm. me. Everyone's mm. obsessed with the Masters, yeah. buying into the very thing yeah. that we're warning people about yeah. buying into. What was Wingfoot like, US Open? It was awesome. Wingfoot's such a good golf course. Very different, obviously, to Augusta. A lot flatter. Um, green Complex is probably just as wild and, and interesting, um, if not probably wilder. I mean, they're, they're seriously impressive pieces of construction more than anything like they let hands off the chain yeah didn't they? And he really... yeah I, I mean how much dirt they would have moved there like it was interesting coming from bloomfield hills country club where you know i was watching mike operate a dozer to then seeing a product like winged foot which was constructed in the late 20s and you know to see how much dirt they would have had to move to uh, like to build that and understanding what that looked like with a bulldozer just a week before with mike devries like Whatever, like it was insane how much time and money they would have spent on site with 1920s equipment building what was there. Um, yeah, I mean, Wingfoot's awesome. The experience, I mean, I obviously didn't play very well and the setup was really contrived, you know, five. You know, yeah, this graduated rough from three and a half, four inches to six inches or something in the deeper areas. Um Manicured rough, manicured as well. Like they, like, they had the blowers. They were fluffing it up, yeah. Yeah, fluffing the, it with rakes yeah, to make sure the just like yeah, they're doing everything they could because because you put a if you drive a buggy through it, it looks terrible. Yeah, so they've got to get they've got to follow a buggy with like rakes and mm. blowers to like yeah. just one set of buggy tracks yeah, makes no. it look terrible. I'm on your team. You don't need to convince me again. I'm, I've been with you on this one from the uh, from the start. What about the US Open experience? And then talk a bit about playing. Yeah, you can't know how good you are until you've gone and tested yourself against yeah. the best. So, what'd you learn about yourself in your own game, particularly those two tournaments, but yeah. in this stint in the states? Yeah, so yeah, I mean, the experience was awesome. You know, brushing shoulders with some of the best golfers in the game at the moment, seeing how they play golf as well, and kind of seeing that my game. I mean, I had a horrible week at Wingfoot. I didn't play well, but seeing that there was nothing they did that I felt like I couldn't. Like, obviously, Bryson hitting 360-yard drives. I probably can't do that. But um, there wasn't too much I saw in everyone else's game that I was like, you know, I can't do that. Everything that they did, I could do. I just don't do it quite as often as, as them. So, yeah, it was it was really important and valuable, valuable for me to see how 
good they are at golf and see that they probably aren't maybe as good as I'd made them out to be in my mind. So that was cool to see that, you know, maybe I do have a future in this if I can improve little bits and pieces of my golf game. It's ironic, isn't it? Because most of us at our level, and I'm pointing to me and Adrian here, have no concept of how good the best in the world are. And yet players get to a certain point where their belief about they're so good that their belief about the best in the world, that they're better than they they Mm. actually are. It's Mm. bizarre, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, no, I definitely didn't get the impression that it was completely unachievable being like a top-class PGA Tour player. Um, Just... Who'd you play with? Who'd you get up sort of close to? You told me who you played. Some yeah, I played probably the most important parts were practice rounds, mm-hmm. playing with some really good players. So mm-hmm. at the US Open, I played practice rounds with Patrick Cantlay, Sung Im, Adam Scott, Rio Ishikawa. Um, and then the US Open, played again with Cantlay, Xander Schauffele, Colin Morikawa, um, and Max Homer. Uh, so I played with some really good younger players, mm-hmm. which was good because they were around my age and I could see, you know, if they're you know, if I'm a year younger than them or whatever whatever the age difference was, but I'm also five years of development away from them, like I could kind of see. But yeah, they definitely they were definitely very good at golf. But, you know, if you had an everyday golf watcher out there watching the practice rounds, I felt like I wouldn't have been I wouldn't have looked out of place amongst those guys. Like the percentages are tiny, aren't they? Once you get, yeah, there, really absolutely. Are yeah, the, I mean, there's I I I always think there's probably. It's probably 50 guys, 30 to 50 guys in the world that would make it on tour regardless. They're so good that they're going to be on the PGA Tour or on the top tour no matter what. And then there's like 1,000 to 3,000 guys that had a good break and are now playing on the PGA Tour and, and they make up the rest of the field. So there's, there's a churn of those. Players. Yeah. That's what the Corn Ferry exactly. Tour is and a lot exactly. of European and Challenge Tours, those guys who... Yeah. And I think, you know, in a way... I had my break by winning the mid-am. Like, mm-hmm. I I'd won the right tournament at the right time, had my break to get that opportunity to play those Masters, and that's such a good opportunity for me to then kick on and be one of those guys that makes up the rest of the PGA Tour. I don't, I don't think I'm one of those 30 to 50 guys that regardless will make it. You would probably be there already if you were, wouldn't you? Exactly. You'd, yeah, you'd, you'd, you'd have heard of McElroy's. And yeah. You've heard of these guys exactly. for that reason, yeah. But um, I think I would... I've still got a chance to be one of those other guys. That well, people play themselves into a top 50 career as well. Exactly. Somehow. Yeah. So There's so many guys that people talk about, like, oh, you know, when he was 18, he was sort of, you know, the fifth or sixth best guy in Sydney or Melbourne or whatever. And, but he just kind of kept at it and did the right things and yep. was playing the PGA Tour. So. Does, does the 3,000th best golfer in the world make much of a living? No, no. It's probably I'd say there's probably five to six hundred male golfers that actually make decent living. I mean, there's really Japan, America, and Europe. Um, obviously, America. There's probably two hundred ish guys, including a, a few on the Corn Ferry Tour that make decent money. And then Europe. There's probably a hundred, and then Japan. There's probably another hundred. So, yeah, there's. And then Asia, maybe 50. So there's probably like five to 600 that live fairly comfortable. And and then there's probably you know, 100 to 300 of those guys making really good money. But yeah, the, the sort of those extra sort of 400 to 600 in the world live pretty comfortably, I think. Is, is that is that fair, do you think? Because like if I'm... I'm sorry, sorry, Logue's a communist. I forgot to say <laughs> yeah. I, I just think this is the one of the furthest things away from 
communism that you could have. Yeah. Like, it's just you're, if you're the three thousandth best podcaster, in actually that's probably not a great. Well, how many? Yeah, well, how there's many a million and something podcasts. There's so a I lot of podcasts. I'm not even sure I'd be in the top mm. five thousand. Yeah, probably not. Probably know. not. Yeah. I'm making about the right <laughs> amount of money then. <laughs> but if you're the three thousandth best at anything in the world, there is a lot of people in the world doing an activity like golf. And if you're the three thousandth best at that in the world, you're truly exceptional at, at what that. you're doing. But what's the value and of that? I don't, I don't mean to. Put I know, it, but what's the value of Lucas being good at golf or that, Dustin Johnson? Yeah, I think the fact that it's a a sport should be taken into consideration. It's not like you know you're not the three thousandth best brain surgeon in the world, like you know saving lives or something like that. But how much would you pay the three thousandth best brain surgeon in the world if you needed a brain operation? I think they could probably you'd be, do a you'd be, job. You'd be bargaining down, wouldn't you? <laughs> Don't you think? I think you probably would. You'd be like, mate, <laughs> I tried the first two. I don't know how <laughs> They're all busy, so I'm down to you. Well, uh, let's take it down a level then. Like, it, I, I think I've given this comparison before with software development. Like, if you're the three thousandth best software developer in the world, you're a really good software developer. Like, there there is a very long tail of mm. pretty high quality software development, and then it just keeps going and going and going to be like there's extremely poor quality software development going on into the millions and tens of millions probably but so if you're the 3000th best software developer in the world you should be earning a huge amount of money like it's you're you're truly exceptional at what you're doing and golf is you know just as difficult Mm. um, but it's an entertainment so perhaps Mm. there shouldn't be such a, a big sort of top tier um, but still, I just I still feel like you know that's that's quite an achievement. That takes you've got to kind of dedicate your life to become the three thousandth best mm. at something in the world. You know, you know, you might be like the two hundredth best. You just pulled this out of your well, looking something up. No, no, that's. I mean, I'm probably in that thousand to three thousand bracket. I would say. You know, I'm. I think on the professional rankings, I'm like fourteen hundred or something like that. Because it's not a big spread one thousand to three. Yeah, no. <laughs> you're gonna have yeah. you're not gonna have one person dominating no. that category. No, that and the way they sure. allocate points is yeah. very like doesn't the system's not based to figure out who's the one thousand four hundred and ninety ninth and who's the one thousand five hundredth ranked player. So um, I'd say I'm in that thousand to three thousand bracket. I'm in the top hundred on the world amateur rankings, which you know that it's kind of it's got their own system and but yeah, I'm in probably that bracket. Um yeah, I think, you know, I would like to be in that top 500, but, yeah, it's it's really hard. The breaks that I've had, I've probably had my good breaks and I've just got to take that opportunity to try and get up there. But The bigger question, is it not, is do you deserve to make a living playing golf or being a software developer? Mm. Is there an entitlement there? Should you have a right to expect to be able to make a living playing golf and being the 1,000th or 500th yeah. best at it in the world? Yeah. That's the. Yeah. I think that's the problem with the case you put it. Yeah. It, it makes some sense as a concept that if you're the 3,000th best out of 10 billion people, then you're amazing. Mm. But what are you doing? Yeah. Is what you're doing of any actual value? Economics is probably just defines, I guess, that how much it's kind of like the it's kind of like the women's game. You know, obviously they don't earn as much money as the men, and it comes down to a bit of economics, really. <laughs> you know, um, the three thousandth ranked male in the world, or you know, there's a lot of guys in the world that work just as hard as the guy that's number one in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, they don't make as much money, just the same as the number one female in the world works just as hard as the six hundredth. 400th, 300th guy and still 
doesn't make as well, much money as the, him, whatever the it is. The number one female in the world probably works as hard or harder than the number one that's male in the world. That's true as well. Yeah. Um, and, and they get the same money. The so. mm. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's right. right. You've got that. So yeah, at the fine. very top of the women's game, I don't think – I mean, they make an excellent living, but mm. it's still a ridiculous imbalance. But then I, it's in that sort of – as you go down the tiers. But do the, the men make game. too much or do the women make not enough? Is there not a question about that, that as well? I th- yeah, the men make too uh, much. Is a partly, men's sport. Part of my manifesto. That's right, your communist, communist manifesto, manifesto is, is that is they should <laughs> be spreading that, that men's prize money out a little bit mm. um, to the women's game and further down the, the ranks in the men's game. Um, but uh, the, the women, yeah, there's a ridiculous imbalance. They're doing the same job yeah. and then putting the same work in. It's exactly yeah. the same job. <laughs> And then, and then I suppose you create a system where it balances out like that, and then you get some something like the Premier League. But what was the PGA Tour? What do they call themselves? PGL. PGL. Yeah, which can just scrape those top players off and then make them earn way more money anyway. So it's kind of like you kind of got to. Yeah. Well, is that sustainable? Yeah. That's a product of Tiger Woods. Yeah. That people think that that's possible is Mm. because Tiger Woods existed. We won't have another Tiger Woods for quite a while. There was one Arnold Palmer, there's one Tiger Woods, but probably Mm. another 20 years away from the next Tiger Woods. Mm -hmm. And that's the only thing that drives what they're trying to do. Because in truth, they're talking about having 48 players, the PGL. Go and find the 48th ranked player in the world and tell me if you'd pay money to go and watch them play golf. Yeah, I suppose it depends who they are, but... Because it's the entertainment business. If we took this whole conversation and made it about television shows, people who make bad television that never gets on air work just as hard at doing that as the people who make good television that does get on air. Hmm. So it's the same discussion, isn't it? Why do they deserve to be compensated? So the business that you've gone into is very much... Yeah, that's you. You accept that before you go into it. I'm sure that mm. you do. That mm. you, know, you go out, you put up your numbers, yeah. and you see where you fall. That's kind of yeah. how you. That's what you've chosen to do. As opposed to, I'm going to get a job, mm-hmm. and it's going to pay this, and I'll get this much holidays, and it'll pay the superannuation. The downside is, I'm chained to that. I have to be there from nine to five, or whatever the requirements are. It's a bit depressing. Why? Because you've got a job and I don't. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> and I'm poor and happy and you're wealthy and unhappy. L- L- <laughs> Let's get back to Lucas, shall we? Back to Lucas, yeah, sorry. <laughs> it's a, but it's a, it's a legitimate question. I mean, golf is just entertainment. We take it far yeah, too seriously. No, it definitely is. Far too seriously. You no, know, I uh, There's merit in score. You know, everyone likes to say, you know, oh, you, you know, shoot the lowest score and that's kind of how much you're worth. But, you know, obviously you, someone like, I don't know, Phil Mickelson, you know, probably is a lot more entertaining for how many shots he hits than anyone else. So there's kind of there's the inter- entertainment aspect and then there's actually the quality of mm. golf played. And he's kind of got yeah. probably both. I love Faraday's description of Mickelson. It's like watching a drunk chase a balloon along the edge of a cliff. <laughs> 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 this could go any way at any time. Just, uh, That's perfect. Just hilarious. Sorry, back to yeah. playing experiences while you were in the States. Where did you get to play? I know that you're one who seeks out golf courses yeah. specifically because you're interested in architecture. and. If you could give our listeners some hints on how to be a top 100 <laughs> rater playing an incredible array yeah. of top 100 courses on a budget. Oh, yeah. Amazing. So, so start by winning the mid-am. Yeah, right? step one, yeah, win, win the, the US mid-am. mid-am. Get really, really, really good, then go the mid-am. <laughs> yeah. And after that, it's pretty straightforward, really. Yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah when, I think when I won the mid-am, I almost got like an open invitation to any golf course I wanted to play, which was pretty nice. Um yeah, outside of the courses I played for tournaments, I had the opportunity to... I mean, I did a little trip through Philadelphia, um, played Marion, Pine Valley, Aronomink, Philly Cricket, Rolling Green and Stonewall and Hidden Creek and I mean, a bunch of sort of like of their best golf and a few of the sort of tier two courses that are still 
awesome. <clears throat> and then I also did a trip through Boston because, funnily enough, the first golf coach I ever had when I was like nine years old, he moved to America um, shortly after he sort of after I after he started coaching me and got sort of moved up the ranks and got the head pro job at Philly Cricket and then moved to a course in Boston and so he's living in Boston so we did a little Boston tour and he arranged all the golf so we played um, Brookline and uh, Catanz and Myopia all these great courses around the sort of that yeah northeast area and um, so I played a bunch of great golf over there Bannon Dunes for the amateur was incredible played all the courses there um, then Florida played a little bit of golf South Carolina Yeamans Hall and um, country club is Charleston and um, Old Town Club in North Carolina. I mean, I, Pinehurst. I, <laughs> I think I've had enough. Yeah. I, I think the listeners have probably had enough too. <laughs> but I'm actually almost more excited to come back to Australia and then compare that because mm-hmm. it's always – it's hard to compare golf on opposite sides of the world. Like whenever I go to America, obviously I enjoy the experience immensely and the golf's incredible, but – to get a relative sense of where those golf courses sit after just playing so many of them and coming back to Australia and then to be able to like legitimately with as much authority as anyone see how they stack up Mm -hmm. to those is going to be really interesting. So I'm really looking forward to getting back down to Melbourne and seeing the golf courses. I played the lakes yesterday, which was awesome. Um, Certainly I picked up some stuff that, you know, this walk from this green to tea isn't, you know, great and there was like little bits and pieces that i was way more critical of after playing a bunch of great courses Mm -hmm. in america so um yeah i'm looking forward to to getting back down to melbourne and playing a bunch of great courses as well and just seeing how they stack up in my mind is going to be interesting Hmm. have you thought that um david attenborough they say is the most well he's been to every part of the world (laughs) Hmm. and like he's he's been more travelled than any person in the world. You, you have you ever considered maybe you've played more great courses at a young age for less money mm. than anybody in the world in the history of golf has ever done? I mean, is, is maybe that possible. It probably it very much is possible. I mean, I'm trying to think whether I paid a green fee in America, and I don't think I did. And the greatest thing as well was <laughs> there was uh, due to COVID, there was no caddies, so I didn't have to pay caddy fees either, which can get expensive in America. I mean, it's $100, $120 a round. Um, yeah, it was – I mean, it's probably a pretty good point. I know someone like Mike Clayton hasn't paid a lot of green fees in his life, but I'm also a few years younger than Mike Clayton. So, yeah. um, It'll be an interesting discussion between you two when you get back with the criticism of the lakes and now you're taking pot shots at his age. I wish I could be a fly on the wall when you <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if he's listened to yeah. this. Um, but, yeah, it's probably a good point. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. But. You should write a little travel book or something. Mm, like I definitely uh, could. <laughs> you haven't got enough other stuff to do. So. No, no. It strikes me while you're talking, Lucas, there's almost two types of joy in golf for you. One is competing and one is golf for its own sake. Is that right? And what's the difference between the two? Um, I think I like to spend – I don't know. I just love golf, basically. You know, <laughs> if, I, if I could, I'd pretty much play golf all the time and I basically do What anyway. time do you have left to play golf, Lucas, when you finish yeah. playing the golf you already play? Yeah. You're doing that. Yeah, I just I just love golf. But, um, yeah, they're, they're different sides of golf. And that's the thing about golf. It's got so many different aspects to it 
there's so many little rabbit holes you can fall down, like architecture, equipment. So many people, there's so many equipment junkies that get into like mm. the bending profile yeah, of yeah. The, the shaft and they want to know every single detail of it. Brennan Goddard's like that. Um, but then you've got, yeah, the architecture buffs, you've got te- um, technique buffs. Like I'm a little bit that way inclined, like understanding the technique, the players biomechanics. Players are a lot, aren't they? Yeah. Play- good players. Exactly. Like so I've fallen down that rabbit hole, not necessarily to my own benefit, by mm-hmm. the way. Um, that's a bad rabbit hole to fall down. A lot of professional golfers have gone down that route and completely lost their games. Game, yeah. So there's so many different aspects to golf that it can be – It's overwhelmingly interesting in every aspect. That's mm. that's what I find. Mm. I think I agree. I'm, I'm the same. Mm. I agree there. You don't. I haven't played golf for ages just mm. through other sort of circumstances. I don't feel any less mm. interested in it no. through a lack of playing. It's, so much it's, it's extraordinary, it. isn't it? Yeah. Just talking about it, reading about it, yeah. thinking about it. Uh, and we're going to have to let you go soon because you've got to get to Newcastle. What's on the agenda from here? What's Lucas Michelle's career look like? We know that you've got this relationship mm-hmm. now with Mike Clayton professionally in terms of architecture. Mm. I suppose. Are you considering a professional career, playing career? And can you marry those two? What's What's the immediate future hold for Lucas? I think Michelle? the immediate yeah, short-term, hopefully mid-term and long-term future is to play high-level professional golf still. Um, Has that always been the goal? Or? It actually, yeah, I mean, it was a dream as a kid. Like, I remember the only reason as a kid I'd go to a golf course is because I'm going to be great at this, I'm going to make a lot of money, and I'm going to be rich and famous as a golfer. And then you kind of mature out of that a little bit. But um, I still would like to be a PGA Tour or European Tour or on one of the top tours playing golf, traveling around for a living because I think that just seems like such a cool lifestyle for at least you know, before COVID it was exactly yeah <laughs> it's now for, a lot of swabs up noses yeah. and sitting around in bubbles with your well, caddy I, I've had a lot of those tests yeah. this trip um, but yeah I, I still would like to do that at least for a bit I just think that would be a really good thing to do and enjoyable to do for a few years um, I think at some point I will go down the sort of full time golf architecture route um, hopefully later than sooner um but yeah the next sort of year or so will probably look like a lot of practice a lot of amateur events hopefully some professional events as an amateur um to fine-tune my game get a little bit better i saw the aspects that i felt like i needed to improve it was primarily just my ball striking um and then tour schools should start start up sort of end of next year hopefully as travel starts to normalize so um I'd like to try the European, Japanese, and Asian tours. Um, I would actually love to play in Japan. Japan is one of the places I would love to play on the tour there, certainly in the short term, um, potentially long term as well, but short term for sure. I did Japanese at high school. I like the culture. I've been there, um, like the food. So, like, there's a lot about Japan that I like. So, um, I definitely could see myself playing in Japan in sort of the medium term. But, um, yeah, I have to get a card there first, which isn't the easiest. No, it's right. um, <laughs> just hand them out because you want yeah, the mid-am, do they, exactly, unfortunately? Exactly. So that's sort of like a medium-term goal. and But, you know, in the next year I might figure out that pro golf isn't what mm-hmm. what really attracts me and maybe my game's not as good or where it needs to be and maybe the golf course architecture career is a little sooner than I expect. In the modern era... You're what we would call a very late starter. How old are you now? Mm, 26. 26. Yeah. There wouldn't be too many who wouldn't have no. already been a pro for 
several years that's right. by now. Has that yeah. been, I assume that's been deliberate on your part. Uh, yeah, a little bit. Like, I mean, I did the Australian qualifying school in 2018. So I was 24, which is like not crazy late. No. Like I was 24, looking to turn pro then. And had I got my card, I would have. Um, I probably would have run out of money within six <laughs> months as well. So, um, yeah, sort of two more years was never the plan. Um, but winning the mid-am definitely pushed things back. And now COVID's pushed things back, back even another, further. So two years, isn't it, right? It there? has. Yeah. yeah. So um, that's part of it for sure. I would have never – I would – you know, 25 was kind of where I was thinking, okay, now's the time to figure out where, you know, you get a job or, you know, you you try and do this thing. Because you finished uni, didn't you? Which I finished lot, uni. A lot don't. Yeah, I finished in 2017. And then so 2018 was like a year of amateur golf and then I did the Q school and was hoping to get a card. Didn't get it, but still didn't feel like I'd given it a f- my everything and knew that I was going to be 25 the next year. And, you know, with the mid-am, I knew I'd be exempt into that. So there was a few things kind of that made me wait it out. But, um, yeah, I'm definitely older than most, but golf's, golf's a good sport in that you've oh. got a few more years than most sports. <laughs> Gary Player, I saw him on Twitter the other day still swinging and taking tips yeah. from Jack Nicholson. He's into his 80s, so, yeah, there's plenty yeah. of time. That was a really but, sweet little video, wasn't it? It was, yeah. That was good. I know you never mentioned mechanical engineering as an option at any point. Was that just a waste of four years? A little bit. No, I, I learned a lot, definitely. I mean, it was a good challenge as well, like doing that degree, and um, I did an internship, some work experience as part of it, and working in an office behind a computer for 10 hours a day really didn't attract me a lot. So that was in its own right, in its own way a, a big learning experience. But mechanical engineering, I mean, there's almost no mechanical engineering jobs in Australia. Like no, that's right. manufacturing just yeah, you know doesn't exactly. exist really. So all my friends kind of went into other disciplines or you know finance or they went into other stuff. So it was a good broad kind of degree that kind of was challenging. It's a very difficult degree. Mm-hmm. So I felt like it set me up to kind of work in a lot of different um, disciplines if I needed it. Um, it wasn't like it was a very specific degree. No. So um, more a way of thinking, really. It's, yeah, it's a way of problem solving and thinking, yeah. and it's not necessary. I mean, I learned a lot of different stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, there was computer science subjects there was you know business subjects there was there was a array of different fields that i did subjects in so i was i found it fascinating as a degree and i would probably do it again if i had the option mm. can you fix the dozer if it breaks down because you're mechanical engineering degree? <laughs> i mean i probably a better chance than most <laughs> yeah, people i was gonna say better but- <laughs> chance than mike DeRozan, certainly better than mike Clayton. he watched yeah. me operate some jumper yeah. leads one day at the vic open and he seemed quite surprised by the whole notion of how all that works well, yeah. oh that's interesting isn't it? He, he helped by holding up the bottom magic is this yeah, yeah. exactly what <laughs> it, this is what the racb <laughs> guys do you can do this yourself it's you know? actually been quite beneficial in terms of the um technique rabbit hole uh, understanding torques and forces uh, and right yeah, yeah, yeah mechanics well it's physics isn't it yeah right? it it's- really is i mean a lot of what Bryson talks about is absolute garbage. I've I've realized after listening Terminal to it. velocity. Yeah, thing. he just um, lost all credibility yeah. with that statement. Right? Yeah, but um, never, he was never aiming for credibility. Was he? he's only trying to impress golf riders who know nothing about any of this stuff and people out there. You know, any for years people have been saying he's full of it. 
yeah. physics people are saying it's oh, full yeah. of it. It's nonsense. Yeah. You know, We're going to talk about PXG actually at some point. Not not today, but yeah, we'll talk about on the in the car on the way up mm-hmm. to Newcastle. We'll talk about PXG and all the absolute rubbish that they come mm-hmm. up with in their marketing. Mm-hmm. It's just it's a load. I, I collect it. I've got all of their marketing terms. <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to do with it? I'm. What are you, I just, I what are read you doing it, with your I read life? it and just quietly just seethe. <laughs> yeah. Not that quietly either. It would say as we as you're about to discover. Yeah. It's been terrific to catch up with you, mate. Very good of you to come into the studio. It's always much better in person than on the phone or Skype mm. or any of those things, as you know. So appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for uh, enjoying Newcastle today. Thanks for no being worries. here. Yeah, that's been fun. Always good to have you on board, Logue. Uh, thanks, Rod. Yeah, that, thank you. Very kind of you. Enjoy your day at uh, Newcastle. Back to an old stomping ground for you, isn't it? You grew up in that part of the world. We'll do. I, play, I played uh, Newcastle yeah, hundreds of times as a kid. And Are you uh, going to take Lucas down memory lane? Are you going to drive around through Maitland and have a look at where you used to live and any <laughs> no. of those sorts of things? Or? Maitland's a little bit out, like another half an hour out of the way. Yeah, I wouldn't suggest like driven all that way half Lucas an hour. is not much. You listen but, to a podcast on the way there. Yeah, get uh, one hour, one listen to it at double speed, you get through the whole thing. <laughs> But, yeah, no, Newcastle is a special place. And I, I don't, have you played there before, Lucas? Oh. First time at Newcastle. Yeah, right. it's a trip. Today, you'll, so. you'll, you'll really know. It's quite special. I've heard a lot of good things about yeah, yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Sort of true stuff. All right. Enjoy your day, fellas. That's it for a good, good episode 58. But we will be back next week with episode 59. We just don't know what it's going to be about just yet. <laughs>